Wednesday, August 10th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today, investor at large, Tim Hansen. Hey, yeah. Happy Wednesday. Hey, thanks. Are you enjoying the Olympics? Um, Are you watching any of the Olympics? Yeah, yeah. The, the we, tape delayed Olympics. My, my wife is really big into the Olympics and claims last night, for example. She was a gymnast when she was younger, wasn't no, she? No, that's not true at all. It's not? <laughs> I thought she was. She danced ballet, oh. um, played softball. There, I, uh, gymnastics. I knew it was no. athletics of some sort. Something. Um, we all did something at once. <laughs> uh, she she made the argument last night that it was my patriotic duty to watch Michael Phelps swim. Okay. And um, and I did. And then she also made the very hilarious observation. <laughs> we just got back from a trip to Switzerland, and they were showing they were they had the gymnastics, the women's gymnastics yeah. team event on, and they showed the. Um, you know the vitals on the gymnasts. You know how old they were, their height, their weight, height, their so weight, on and so yep. forth. And just out of nowhere, she goes, "Wow! If that gymnast were riding in a car in Switzerland, she'd have to be in a booster seat." Oh God! <laughs> so that was the highlight of my Olympics last night. That's you know what? I think if commentary like that was added <laughs> to the broadcast coverage, I'd be even more interested in what I already enjoy watching the Olympics. But uh, it's commentary like that that I'm maybe missing. I'll get her to start live tweeting. <laughs> All right, we've got some earnings to get to, uh, and we're going to talk about some of the things you've been tweeting about. Let's start with the Walt Disney Company. Third quarter profits came in higher than expected. The movie studios and the theme parks really driving that. And yet, when you look at the conference call, the analysts seem very focused on the cable networks division and the revenue miss there. Yeah, I mean, that's been the story with Disney. Um, people worried about the rising, you know, the rising cost of content. Coupled with the challenges to to, to cable television, you know, um, there's an interesting thread to pull out for Disney um, with regards to you know what is its what are its core products and then what how does it package them up? So historically, um, the products are you know are the IP, all of the sports events they own, and so on and so forth, and the, the, the products and the packaging have been and the distribution of it have all been. Um, have all been you know vertically integrated, tied together. So Mickey Mouse was shown on the Disney Channel, um, NBA basketball was shown on on ESPN. Right. Increasingly, people want to consume their products in different ways, and so that's going to be a challenge for you know some of the more packaging oriented aspects of the company. But really, you know, I, I, from an analyst standpoint, you know, those calls are always peppered with silly short term questions. <laughs> I mean, that's just how they how they roll, right? That's how they that, that's how they judge themselves. But I think it's sort of missing the forest for the trees. Ultimately, if the if the product, if the content is great, which it is, I mean, you only need to look at what they did in the in the feature films division this quarter. You know, they were rattling off all the titles that were generating revenue, and it's just like a murderer's row of good movies: Zootopia, Finding Dory, you know, so on, the BFG, so on and so forth. Um, if the content is good, people will find a way to consume it. And yeah, that may present some short-term hiccups for Disney, but. As long as it's what the core of it is sustainably good, those hiccups will solve themselves. It reminds me a lot of of the really stupid arguments analysts <laughs> used to have on the Google calls about cost per click going down in mobile, and they'd be like, "Oh, your cost per click's declining." Google's like, "Yeah, but we're getting a ton more clicks, and we'll figure this out." You know, eventually, you know, people need to search it, and yeah, we're having trouble monetizing it right now. But go forward five years, it'll be fine. I mean, it's fine. Google's immensely profitable still, and all that was just. Was <laughs> just noise. Well, and that's the that's part of what I find both interesting and odd about the 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 way that these questions. And let's be clear: when you look at subscribers to ESPN, that number is going down. It's not going down dramatically or yeah. quickly, but it is methodically going down. 
And so it, it's a legitimate question to ask about, okay, what is your strategy around this? What I find interesting and odd is that, kind of like you were describing with the Google calls back then, there appears to be no acknowledgement whatsoever that current management at the company has the, recognizes that this is an issue and has the capacity to deal with it. All of the questions, I don't want to say all, but a lot of the questions seem framed as though Disney executives, Bob Iger and his his top lieutenants, are sitting around on their hands, just going, "Well, I don't, I don't know what we're going to do about this. Well, let's just sit by and do nothing." Well, there's a funny. <laughs> I mean, there's a funny reality about it, right? I mean, would analysts be happy if they somehow came up with a strategy that stemmed subscriber declines next quarter? The analysts would probably be happy about that. But this is a longer term structural problem. Eventually, yeah, people are going to cut cords. I mean, technology is just moving in that direction. Um, Disney made an investment. They re- they announced in um, with Major League Baseball's streaming streaming um, technology company. They're going to go direct to consumer. That's just the way the world is going. You'd rather suffer the short term losses if you think strategically about you know the long term. Uh, but analysts like to you know ask questions about the short term. There's a great Steve Wynn who runs Wynn Resorts. There's a great somebody asked him once. This is a few years ago. You know what he thought the market in Macau is going to be like over the next 30 days. Thirty days. Thirty days, I think it was, <laughs> and he hemmed and hawed, and like tried to give it, you know, the college try as to what the answer was, and he finally said, "You know, I don't know the answer to that because that's not the kind of question we ever think about, except on calls like this." <laughs> and it's a good, that, honest that, answer. That's that's honest and polite. Yeah. Uh, well, and and to the point you were making earlier about about you look at the what they're doing in the movie studios the way so i would understand the skepticism around ESPN and the cable division more if all the other divisions were flat but when you look at what's happening with movies and and the studios and how that is driving not only that division but the consumer products division oh, yeah. and theme parks uh in the one in China which is is just getting started totally agree and and i mean you know fast forward 5 10 years you could foresee theme parks struggling because now all of a sudden people are transitioning over to virtual reality, right? And you can interact with Frozen by putting on your your headset. Will that be a problem? Maybe temporarily if people aren't going to the theme parks, but in the long term, if billions of people are interacting with Frozen using virtual reality, that's going to turn out to be a good thing for Disney. Let's move on to Michael Kors. Yesterday we had Coach. Michael Kors follows today. First quarter profits higher than expected. Uh, Stock dipping ever so slightly because of the Guidance, which was cautious, but that's that's probably a, a smart move on Michael Kors's part, just to be cautious, given that year to date, the, this is a stock that's done well. Yeah, it's, it's a tough environment right now for retailers, particularly luxury luxury retailers, as as Kors aspires to be. Um, it was a, it was an interesting quarter if you're into accounting at consumer discretionary retail companies. Boy, am I ever! Oh boy, <laughs> um, it looks like they pushed the top line by by pushing a lot of product into the wholesale channel, um, which is to say, sending product to department stores. Um, why that's interesting is because it, while it allows them to put up pretty good numbers this quarter, um, there's some risk attached to it because obviously at their own retail stores they tend to charge higher prices. And when you push things into the wholesale channel, you as a company, as a, re- as a maker of consumer discretionary products, have less control over the prices that are being charged. So if Macy's or Nordstrom or someone wanted to mark down your stuff, they can do it if they need to move that inventory and turn it back into cash. Um, you know, as Coach well knows, um, 
companies like this need to be really, really careful about the value of their brands. And so if Michael Kors ends up pushing themselves into some sort of markdown cycle, um, I think that could get pretty tough for the company this year. You're one of the people that I follow on Twitter, and I want to get to a couple of things you've you've put out recently. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> I like following you on Twitter. <laughs> well, well, we'll get to we'll we'll get to one of them in a minute. But um, an article uh, that you posted recently, which which got a lot of praise, Howard Lindzen giving you a nice shout out. Um, I didn't realize people could say such nice things on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> until really the last six weeks when I started putting some stuff up. People uh, were like, I really enjoyed this article. Yeah, I mean, I like this is accurate. I'm like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> You're used to flames. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, the margin of danger, which is the the most one of the, I think it's the most recent article you posted. I think a lot of investors are at least somewhat familiar with the the concept of the margin of safety. Sure, yeah. But um, explain the margin of danger. So this is just an idea born out of some of the experience I've had. Um, Working on investing, um, you know, if you go back, margin of safety comes from Ben Graham and an intelligent investor. And if you read the book, he's got all kinds of examples where he was able to calculate how much less a company was trading than its fair value. You know, and and he found some pretty simple but compelling examples. Um, you know, a railroad that owned forty nine percent of another railroad, and so therefore wasn't consolidating the earnings onto its accounting statements, but would benefit from them. Um, that's a real obvious example of a place where hey, yeah, the market is missing three dollars per share of value. You know, I think the market has gotten a lot smarter since then, and it, every day it's getting smarter with all the math and algorithms and machine learning that's going on out there. There's a hedge fund, Cerebellum Capital, founded by uh, Astro Teller of Google X, that's almost entirely machine learning. You know, and, and whether you believe in machine learning and artificial intelligence or not, the one thing it's certainly good at is it doesn't miss stuff, it doesn't miss obvious, glaring things. Um, so a lot of that sort of Margin of safety, that easily calculable margin of safety, I think has been vacuumed up. Um, and yet, if you read a lot of sell side research reports, as I, as I do, um, or investment blogs, as I do, people are, you know, you can find four or five ideas a week that are 40 to 50 percent undervalued. I think that's, I think that's crazy. Um, and that, that's what the. So people, people putting out notes yeah, saying, the, hey, the, look, I'm looking at this company, five different companies. Disney, crazy undervalued right now. Here's why, right? And, Maybe it's true. It's possible. Um, the market is not 100% efficient, I don't think. There are pockets of inefficiency, but the margin of danger is saying that, um, you know, whereas margin of safety, the farther you get below the, the farther the market price is from your estimate of fair value, the better an investment it is. That's what it posits. Margin of danger says that the farther below you get from a market value of a price, the more likely your mistake is actually, your, the, I'm sorry, the more likely your analysis has actually made a mistake. There's something wrong that you've done, whether it's like, Fat-fingered a number, uh, completely missed a risk factor, something like that. So it, it just concludes and says, "Hey, if you think you found something that's fifty percent undervalued, your next step shouldn't be to buy the stock, but to check your work." I like that because it's it's one that's just a good that's just a good habit in most things in life, but in particular if um, you know, as you say, you look at the market writ large, the amount of information we have at our fingertips relative to 2030, and certainly, you know, go back to when Ben Graham first wrote that book, um, then it certainly makes sense to sort of, you know, like, really? You might want to double check that. Exactly. Um, so here's something you, you tweeted over the weekend that uh, depressed me. Uh, you wrote, the SP 500 is at an all time high. The number of good investing ideas I have. Is at an all-time low, 
And I read that, and I just, I, I my heart sank a little bit because I just thought, well, Tim is so much smarter an investor than I am, and if he's looking at the universe of stocks and going, yeah, I don't know, I don't really see anything, I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> what what chance do I have? What what is what is going on? That it, I mean, is it sort of born out of the margin of danger where you're just like, I'm not seeing. Any compelling value whatsoever? Yeah. So, to, to give you an insight into my personal process, I keep a list of stocks that I follow. It's probably 30 to 40, something along those lines, of companies that over time I think are good companies. And I, I keep little. Do you own any of them? Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. My portfolio, I, I, you know, I own stocks personally. Definitely. No, no, no. I know. But I'm just wondering, like, is your list exclusively, oh, I, these are ones that are, these are a watch list. Oh, yeah, it's setup. stuff I own and stuff I would like to own, okay. and so on and so forth. It's stuff that I've just accumulated over the years and added and continued to follow, um, whether out of morbid curiosity or because I'm interested, you know, and stuff I own and so on and so forth. And I, I have a spreadsheet next to which I have, you know, a range of prices at which I'd buy them. And you can very easily load the current price in and do some math, and it tells you if any of them are below the price at which you'd buy them. And, um, you know, in 2009, I think like, 39 of the 40 were below the price at which I'd buy them. And I, you know, looking the other day, and it was two were below <laughs> the price at which I'd buy them. And um, both were energy companies. And you know, right now, given oil prices, energy companies may be cheap, but it's, it's, it's hard to know because their foundational asset, the value of it, unlike the value of frozen, which is infinite, infinite and stable. <laughs> um, uh, you know the value of 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 some crude oil in the ground can ebb and flow based on a lot of a lot of factors. So uh, don't feel great about diving. Just being like, hey, you know what? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to buy a ton of energy stuff right now. I mean, that wouldn't have, that could have done that a year ago, and it wouldn't have worked out that well. So yeah, I mean, it makes. I've been cautious personally. Cash is starting to pile up a little bit, but that's okay. I, that would that goes to my follow up question, which is, what do you do in that regard? Do you just say, "Well, I'm just going to keep this in cash and wait for my opportunities," or do you say, "Well, I'm going to I'm going to buy a little bit more of uh, an S and P 500"? Yeah, I mean, like you know, that. not to give everybody too big a spotlight into my personal financial life, but you know, 401k plan. That's just every week that yeah. plugs along and puts some money into some some funds, indexes, um, and so then the money that I have outside of it is money that can be. I, Choose generally to be a little bit more opportunistic with, um, and so I'm just sort of sitting on being lazy. I mean, people who know me know that my favorite thing to do is nothing. You can't make a mistake right. if you don't do anything. <laughs> um, one, one more question on this before we wrap up. Um, this came up, uh, I think, last week. Uh, we were uh, talking on IPOs, and and uh, oh, it was when Dylan Lewis asked me to come on Industry Focus, and and we were. Uh, talking about the HBO show Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. and one of the things we touched on is how you look over the last, certainly the last year and a half, maybe even a little bit more than that, the number of companies going public has just grinded, not to a halt, but pretty darn close. I'm curious, just re- regardless of industry, are you someone who is interested in IPOs? Are you some, or are you someone who says? Well, I, I, I want to see how they do for a couple of quarters before you know. If if a private company makes its way onto your list, do you say I'm going to give them two quarters? I'm going to give them a full year of being a public company, or do you do you look to jump in sooner? Um, mostly the latter. I have a, I have a personal rule of thumb <clears throat> that I've developed, which is I don't I, I don't own more a bigger percentage position in a company than the number of years I followed it. So if I've only followed, even if it's been public for ten years, if I've only followed it for one. I wouldn't buy more than one percent. 
Um, the reason for that is that it reduces the likelihood that I'm exposed to a mistake that I've made in the places where I'm most likely to have made a mistake, which is things I just don't know that well. And IPOs, I think, throw a couple variables at you that make them hard to know. One is that they haven't been public, so you don't know how they're going to act when they go public. And then secondarily, they know when they're going public, and so they can make some conscious choices to dress up their financial statements leading up to that event. Companies do that? I've heard. <laughs> um, you know, I think there's a Latin American McDonald's franchisee, Arcos Dorados. I think the best year in the history of the company was the year before they went public. <laughs> Uh, from a profit standpoint. So, you know, that's not irrational that they're doing that. But as a person who's taking on the risk and taking on ownership, I think it just makes sense to um, try before you buy, so to speak. Uh, a couple of housekeeping notes before we wrap up. Thank you uh, to Paul Chen, one of our listeners who's visiting from Houston. Spe- we love that. Spe- we love that. Come by Fool HQ. Speaking of, uh, he's uh, in D.C. Uh, on vacation with his kids. And his kids very smartly did not come to Full HQ because that's. I hope that the Air and Space Museum. That's lovely. I, that is always a hit. <laughs> that is always a hit. Uh, and thank you to everyone who uh, who wrote in or tweeted at me about Asheville, North Carolina. I'm I'm leaving in about an hour. I'm going to drive down there. Great town. And you're going to uh, have some fun. I well, here's the thing. So don't have too much fun. I, I won't because I'm I'm only there. I'm there for less than 24 hours. So I, some of the emails I got were wonderful, and they were just like. Basically, if you're spending four days, you yeah, know, yeah, so yeah. like, oh, you can go here and you can do this <laughs> hike and all. And it's like, ah, I basically I'm looking for a dinner and a breakfast. A couple of people, by the way, mentioned the the breakfast place you mentioned to me, Tupelo Honey. Um, but I, but I, uh, someone else give it a shot. But someone else mentioned a, a breakfast place in Asheville called Biscuit Head. Ooh, I feel like that. You, you know, you could have two breakfasts. I <laughs> live a little. You know what? I might do that. <laughs> I, might, I might wake up early, just do a, a quick hit. Uh, which one do I hit first? I guess uh, I haven't one, been to Biscuit Heads. So whichever one opens first. I was in Mexico City once, and I was debating which taqueria I wanted to go to, and they were down the block from each other. <laughs> so I just pulled the double and had two dinners. Nice. It was a great day. I believe on Louis C.K.'s uh, <laughs> show on FX, I believe they call that a bang-bang. It's like you hit one, hit the other. Bang-bang. <laughs> Tim Hansen, thanks for being here. Thank you, bud. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, no buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.